Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning, and uh, thank you for allowing someone else in your in the pulpit besides your wonderful pastor. And I uh, sure love Steve, and thank God for his ministry here, and the privilege to serve with him on our district. Steve serves on our district advisory board, and I'm so privileged to be able to work with him. Uh, pray for him and Lynette as they travel, and I know that you'll be excited whenever they get home, um, but I'm really excited to be able to be here with you. It's nice on those Sundays when I've only got to travel 25 or 30 minutes away from home to preach at a church, and I bring you greetings on behalf of 57 other churches of the Nazarene across North Arkansas, and if you want to know what that means, that's basically Interstate 40 to the Missouri state line, and uh, we are a part of a of a family together, and uh, we get the privilege to do ministry together and participate in life together across our district, and your church is a major part of that. And so thank you for being who you are, Greenbrier, and uh, for your faithfulness and support of our, of our global church and all of the work that's being done around the world. Um, 2.6 million Nazarenes all over the world, and you are a part of that and uh, helping support the work of missionaries and the planting of churches, both at the global level as well as here on our district. And I thank God for you, and uh, thank God for the work that God is doing here in your church and through your, your pastoral team. And um, <laughs> Steve gone today, and Hunter and Melanie are gone today, so uh, uh, thanks to um, Pastor Daniel and Amanda and, and Hayden for their, their great work stepping in. And you have a great team, and it's a privilege to serve with them and to love them. Uh, my wife doesn't get to travel with me all that often. We still have four children at home. Most DSs are empty nesters when they start this job. I still don't know that the general leaders knew what they were doing when they asked me to do this. And uh, they brought in a DS that's got four kids at home. And so uh, my wife stays home. We go to Conway first, usually. It's kind of our home church. And um, this morning, uh, Kelly's here with my oldest son, Ivan, who's in the youth group. But our, our three little guys are at Conway first this morning. Um, and uh, someone else is caring for them. But I love it that I get to have my wife with me this morning. So, Kelly, would you let them greet you? Would you stand and let them say hi to my wife? She loves it when I do this. Would you guys say hi to Kelly? <laughs> she travels with me once in a while just to see if I really am still preaching and doing ministry because she's not quite sure. So, well, it's great to be with you. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading at verse 20. If you have a Bible and you want to open it, that'd be wonderful, um, but it, it'll be on the screen if you, if you need, the, need this. We're going to enter into this passage, really we're going to get plopped right down into it, and uh, we'll have to kind of back up a little bit to provide a little context to this text, um, but uh, hopefully you'll, you'll appreciate this particular story and uh, maybe even relate to it in just a way, maybe it's a little familiar to you. John chapter 12, um, beginning at verse 20 says, now there were some Greeks meaning Gentiles, non-Jewish folk, okay, among those who went up to worship at the festival. In other words, Israelites would come to Jerusalem for the festival that uh, ultimately results in Passover and Jesus' death on the cross, resurrection. But not only would, would Jews go there, but sometimes Gentiles that believed in Israel's God would go and be a part of those things as well. And that's probably what we're dealing with in this particular situation. These Greeks came to Philip. And who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. It's interesting to me that the, the Greeks went to the, the Greek-named disciple, Philip. And he went to another Greek-named disciple. The only two, Philip and Andrew. And those two kind of Greek guys, not they're Jewish, but they have Greek names, in turn told Jesus. 
and basically said, Jesus, there are some Greeks here who want to see you. And so Jesus replies, man, I can't wait to meet them. That's great. Where are they at? Let's go have a conversation. That's not at all what happens, and it blows everybody away. Instead, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John adds parenthetically, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. May God add blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Amen. Well, things were at a high point for Jesus at this particular point in the Gospel of John. For some time, news of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead has been spreading far and wide. In fact, by the time we get to verse 20 of chapter 12 here, for more than a chapter, and you know, we got to just put all this stuff in, you know, You've got 20-some verses, 20-some chapters. A lot of language and time is spent. From the time Jesus finds out Lazarus is is sick and he ends up going there and eventually he's dead and Jesus raises him from the dead, a lot of time passes and there's a lot of things happening between chapter 11 and this point in chapter 12 that has happened as a result of that one event. Things are really rocking and rolling for Jesus' ministry now. It is spread far and wide that this is not just any prophet, not just any miracle worker, but that this particular prophet, this particular teacher, has the ability to not only wow us with his teaching, but to wow us with his miracles. And not just any miracle. It's not just water or wine. This isn't just making a blind man see. This is actually overcoming death, the ultimate enemy, and raising someone to life. And that news has spread not only to Jews, even though it has, but but it is now spread beyond the house of Israel as indicated by these Greek folks who have now heard about Jesus, have heard about what Jesus has been doing, and they come and they want to see him. Now, right after the, the resurrection of Lazarus, between the resurrection of Lazarus and this event, is a very important story in the life of Jesus. And we all know it well. We just celebrated a few weeks ago, and that was the triumphal entry. Jesus, kind of riding the wave of this experience of raising Lazarus from the dead, comes to Jerusalem, and and the the crowds receive him kind of like a conquering king. Now, he's on a colt. He doesn't do anything conquering kings do. But the imagery they set up for him is that of a conquering king. Their Messiah has finally come to Jerusalem. And, of course, all the imagery of what that means. This guy's going to come, get rid of all the Roman soldiers and all the bad guys, set up a new kingdom a new Davidic throne with him on the throne and we'll follow a new Messiah and we'll, God will restore the house of Israel. They have all this imagery in their mind about what's going to happen. So as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, 
They lay down the palm branches. They start quoting scripture, singing songs. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All that triumphal entry stuff. And, and things could not be looking better for Jesus in that. Now here's the cool thing about it. The disciples have been waiting for this moment. They've been following him for almost three years. They have been eagerly anticipating the day when the crowds finally accept Jesus. When the political authorities finally embrace him. When, when the culture finally says, this is the Son of God. And kind of jump on board the Jesus train. Huge crowds, adoring public. Everybody's saying, this is the one, let's follow him. So folks come looking for Jesus. They want to hear from him. They want to see him. And now that he's raised someone from the dead, the crowds have gotten even bigger. They want to experience some of that, self, some of that stuff for themselves. So you would think that, you know, all the crowds gathered there, that Jesus would recognize this moment and would start talking to them about kingdoms and power and, and victory and success and all the things that you would do if you're trying to collect a group of people to follow you all the way to a revolution. But Jesus, in a striking turn, instead, isn't really ready to capitalize on his popularity at all. Instead, when these Greeks come and say, we want to see Jesus, they don't find a Jesus who's saying, great, let's go. They find a Jesus who wants to talk about death. And not just death in general, but very specifically, talk about his own death. Now, up to this point, Jesus has been resisting all attempts to go public. People have been trying for some time to get him to kind of say, here's who you are, and everyone jump on board, and let's make this thing go. But for whatever reason, and maybe it's because this is a group beyond the house of Israel, we don't know exactly why, but for whatever reason, this visit from these Greeks, something is triggered in the heart and spirit of Jesus, these Gentile types, where Jesus knows now is the time to go public. But when Jesus decides to go public, his going public looks a whole lot different than the way his disciples think his going public ought to look like. He doesn't use this moment to go public by um, throwing a party or, or having a festival or by doing some sort of miraculous thing to make the crowds even bigger. Instead, Jesus says the words, the hour has come. And for Jesus, that means Jesus knows that now is the time for his ministry to move from what it's been doing toward the ultimate purpose for which the Father has sent him. And while it would be a whole lot easier and more comfortable for them, the Greeks, the disciples, maybe even for you and me to hear these words as glad tidings, you know, power, authority, military, overcoming, victory, the time has come, he's arrived, resurrection just around the corner, Jesus doesn't want them to stop and miss the big picture for which, for the reason why he came and to do all this in the first place. You see, Jesus wants the people to understand that the glorification of the Father in the life and ministry of Jesus is not going to come through popularity. It's not going to happen when the culture finally accepts him. It's not going to happen when the authorities approve of who he is. It won't even happen by resurrection. Jesus knows that ultimately the glorification of the Father will come through the betrayal of the ones he trusts, by the rejection of his friends, by the suffering by, of an unjust society on innocent man, and ultimately by the death at the hands of the ones he came to save. In fact, believe it or not, rejection, suffering, death, a cross, become the very means by which God glorifies the life and ministry of Jesus. 
Now, the truth is, we don't really ever, we don't know if the Greeks ever got an audience with Jesus. We don't really know if he kind of saw in them just a bunch of kind of um, paparazzi types who just wanted to get close to power or close to glory, and he was kind of rejecting that. We don't know, but, but we do know that Jesus understands that for the Greeks to fully see him, for the disciples to fully see him, for all the crowds to fully see him, and brothers and sisters, even for us to fully see him, to benefit from what he's actually been sent into this world to do, Jesus knows that his only response is to carry on and complete the work the Father has given him. Therefore, he says, the hour has come. And then Jesus begins to talk about and say that, you know, this is a great ministry, but if this ministry is ever going to go beyond me, if it's ever going to go beyond the 12, the disciples, the ones who are here following me, Jesus knows that if it's ever going to really reproduce and multiply, then whether, whether we like to hear these words or not, or whether they wanted to hear these words or not, Jesus will have to die. Because Jesus understands that it's through his death that real life is made possible. But Jesus is, is, is fully human, just as he's fully God. And in his humanity, all of this troubles him. And he says, I'm troubled by this. He goes, you know, even though I know what this is going to mean for me, do I, do I veer off of God's plan? Do I reject the will of the Father? Do I ask God to, to do something different? Do I, do I choose a different path? And he, he comes to his own conclusion. No, it's for this very reason I came. And we, we, we hear him say all of that, and we, we're moved by his humanity here, the emotion of it all, and we're overcome. We don't like it. We avoid it, in fact, because we don't like death and suffering either. When it comes to our own mortality, our own death, the reality of it, we, we prefer to push past that, to sanitize it, really. We, we kind of push you know, mortality to, to the finite corners of our mind, and we hope it stays there. You know, even, even, our, even our celebrations, the last few weeks, you know, most of those Holy Week's memories of my childhood growing up were celebrations with Palm Sunday, man, and We'd gather together and we'd wave the palm branches and we'd sing the great songs and we had a ball with that. And then we would jump straight to Easter, man, and we would celebrate Jesus is alive and well in the resurrection. But I'll just be honest with you, when I was a kid, we didn't do a whole lot with Good Friday. We just kind of knew it was there. We didn't want to stop and think about it. We just wanted to kind of go from one celebration to the next. And I'll tell you, in all my years of pastoring, those 25 years of leading churches and doing Good Friday services, or, you know, we call it Maundy Thursday, it's basically where we celebrate the Last Supper of Jesus, or whether we do a Seder meal and we remember the Passover and how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover. In all my years of doing those other events, the attendances at those events never, never rivaled anywhere near close to what we would experience, the joy and the power and the partying of Easter Sunday. But Jesus, in this text, and in, in the reality of even the way the Christian calendar is laid out, we can't have Easter Sunday, friends, without Good Friday. We can't have a resurrection without death. We can't have an empty tomb without a cross. We don't like that. We want to turn away from that reality. They all wanted Jesus to walk away from that reality. But he would not, he could not, and neither can we. If we're going to ever really experience the joy of what it means to be a child of God, 
to experience the joy of salvation and celebrate the fact that heaven awaits us and new life is here in front of us, that we will all ourselves have to face the pain of the cross and be reminded how Jesus was committed and obedient to the will of the Father, even at his own detriment, even at his own personal loss. And in this text, we feel the raw emotion of Jesus. He knows that dying is why he came. In his humanity, he doesn't look forward to that. But he also knows that his obedience to death is what will bring glory to the Father. And brothers and sisters, that was always Jesus' highest goal. Amen? Always to bring glory to the Father. That was his highest goal. Perhaps it should be our highest goal. Now that seems so counterintuitive to us. The idea that the cross, suffering, the rejection of Jesus could be the very means by which God would reconcile the world. You see, we would choose, if we were writing the story, if we were building a movement, we would just settle in on resurrection, comfort, success, everything up and to the right for drawing people to God. And for about 20 years, in the last 30 years, we spent a good bit of time as the church kind of presenting a Jesus and a gospel very much like that. But Good Friday reminds us that the invitation from Jesus is not so that we can just simply tag him on to an already successful life. The gospel is not something that we just kind of plug in to our life and not really allow it to have any impact other than we embrace Jesus, we allow him to forgive us of our sins, we invite him into our heart, and then we live our lives and then we go to heaven someday. And if we add Jesus to it, then our lives, which are already pretty good, they'll be even better. We'll be more successful, we'll be more happy, we'll be good, we'll be blessed. But every time we kind of move down that path, we hear Jesus once again refusing to answer the, refusing to respond to the crowd's plea, refusing to, to, to give in to the popularity, and he reminds us that he came to earth to die on a cross. And not only did he come to die on the cross, but he invites us as his followers, not just to tag him on and wear a cross, but he invites us to pick up our cross and follow him. And when we begin to follow Jesus seriously, my friends, yeah, there's joy, there's success, there's blessing, but more often than not, following Jesus is very much a path to our own cross. But Jesus knew that in obedience to the Father, that's how he would bring glory to the Father. And that God would use that very, that very means as a way that he would bring this world into a right relationship with him. In fact, there was, there was no other way. In fact, there is no other way for this world to be made right with God. There is no other way for you and me to be in a right relationship with God other than through the, the, the blood and the death and the life and the ministry and the grace of Jesus. See, most of the sermons of the cross I've heard over the years always tend to focus on the forensics of the cross. How horrible crucifixion is and how sad it is that we had to recognize that Jesus, this innocent one, this one from God, died such a horrendous death. Most of my images of the cross have always been more like, you know, passion of the Christ type of stuff. That Jesus was broken in the blood and the horrible nature of the whole thing. And friends, Jesus was troubled by all of that. But John wants us to understand, in fact, 
pretty much all the gospel writers want us to understand that Jesus was not blindly led to the cross. He didn't go there. He wasn't driven there. He wasn't dragged there against his will. Jesus went to the cross with the full knowledge that this was the will of the Father. And he went there by his own obedience because he knew that the outcome of his suffering would have purpose and meaning for you and for me. He did it for all of us, but it breaks my heart to realize that he would have done all of that had it only been for me. When Jesus saw the reality of the cross in front of him, he saw death. Sure he did. He wasn't stupid. He's he's not naive. He knows what that meant for him. But the, the Hebrew writer would say this, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. And every time I read that passage, it breaks my heart because I realize I was the joy set before him for him to endure the cross. You are the joy set before Jesus for his scorning of the shame of the cross. And even though the experience was anything but good for him, the end result is very good for us. Therefore, good Friday. You see, Jesus understood the power of all of that, and he did that just for you, and he did it just for me. Which is why I think he used the phrase, he's, the phrase he did to illustrate the purpose of the cross. If we go back to that John 12 text again, verses 32 and 33. Jesus shows us the big picture. Here's what he says in verse 32. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And in verse 33, John adds... He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. A reality, the recognition of the cross. None of them in that moment could understand what he was talking about. Only as we look back now, we understand Jesus was guiding this direction. He was moving in this direction. All the way through, it feels like, as you read the Gospels, Herod, the Herods think they're in charge. Pilate thinks he's in charge. The high priest Caiaphas and his clan think they're in charge. The, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they all think they're in charge. The Romans think they're in charge. The soldiers think they're in charge. It looks like Jesus being led to the slaughter. But brothers and sisters, the testimony of the Gospels is very clear. The only one who was in charge was Jesus. He was the one who allowed this to happen. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. When you and I hear that, we're Christians. We immediately start thinking the cross, the cross. He was lifted up high on the cross for all the world to see. That's what we think of. But those first followers of Jesus, the people who would have heard him actually say those words, they wouldn't have had that imagery possibly just yet. For them, their minds would have immediately raced to a different story in their history as Israelites. They would have immediately recalled an event in the history of their journey as the people of God found in Numbers 21, where the people are wandering around in the wilderness and they're complaining and they're grumbling about God and they're grumbling about the wilderness and they're grumbling about Moses and they don't like the manna and they just want to go back to Egypt. At least it was predictable. At least they knew they were going to get a good meal out of it. And they basically, in their, in their complaining, began to sin against God who had delivered them. And the Bible says 
that, that God sent these serpents among their camp. And these serpents began to bite the people. And they were injured and wounded. Some of them even died. And the folks recognized, wait a minute, this is happening because of our disobedience. And they cried out to God in repentance. And they cried out in mercy. And they asked Moses to pray for forgiveness on their behalf. And Moses did it. And when Moses prayed for them, the Bible says, Numbers 21 says, that God instructed Moses to do this. He said... Make a fiery serpent, kind of, a, kind of a bronze serpent, and attach it to a pole. And then raise that pole up. And everyone who is bitten, when they see that, they will live. So the Bible says that Moses, in obedience, made a bronze serpent, attached it to the pole, raised it up. And if anyone, if anyone that had been bitten by the serpent saw it, they would look at the bronze serpent and live. That's the image that the folks would have thought of when Jesus gave that same illustration himself. The bronze serpent lifted up so that by seeing it, here's the, here's the interesting phrase it says, they would see it and by seeing it they might be healed. Now in the passage we just read, Jesus embraces that vision for himself. That the cross, yes, is an image of salvation. Yes, it's an image of, of, of the conquering of of, of evil, yes, it's an image of, of rescue, it's an image of love, of all of that, but Jesus attaches to that, all of those visions, another image, and, and that is the cross as a symbol, an image of God's healing. You see, we like to think about the how of the cross, the forensics of it all. Jesus wanted to focus on the why of the cross, because the why of the cross is really the point, not so much the how. God used the serpent to heal the people. And Jesus understood that by him being lifted up on the cross for all the world to see, the Jews who he was connected to, but now even these Greeks who have come to see him, by him allowing all of that to happen so that the world would see, one of the images that would happen is that by seeing him there, they too would experience healing. The lifted up serpent becomes the means by which God saved the people by healing them, by saving their lives. You see, Jesus was lifted up on the cross. And in the same way as that bronze serpent, Jesus' sacrificial death upon the cross became the means by which God saves people by healing people. Not just by seeing him there, as the bronze serpent on the pole, but more than that, by being drawn to Jesus there. And then Jesus would even go one step further and say, those, those who are my servants are not just those who see me, not even just those who are drawn to me, but those who serve me and obey me. It goes one step further to him. And I wonder maybe if that's why the Greeks never got their audience with Jesus. Maybe they were like so many of us. They want to see Jesus they want the goodies that Jesus gives. They want to be drawn to him, but they don't really want to obey him. They don't really want to walk in, in willful obedience to him and his will for their lives. But Jesus says, you will be drawn to me, but I don't want you just looking and gawking and experiencing it all. I want people who are in relationship with me, walking with me, loving me, living for me, serving me, and obeying me. Now, what I love about Jesus is that he is unapologetic in his call for us to live a life of obedience to him. 
Over and over again, he says, my disciples are the ones who obey me. Even in the Great Commission, he says, I want you to, I want you to baptize folks and go into all the world, and I want you to teach them everything I've taught you. Basically, to teach them to obey who I am. All of that. And what I love about Jesus is he's not just you know, another leader who says, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Or follow me and obey me, even though I might have hedged a bit. No, no. Jesus models for us what it means to follow and obey. And submit himself to the will of the Father. Isaiah 53. We know that passage. It's the ultimate servant song. Written 700 years before Jesus. You and I can't read that text without seeing Jesus there. We love that passage. It talks to us about Jesus. A couple verses within us kind of show us what Jesus kind of embraced for himself as the suffering servant. It says, surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. And by his stripes, by his bruises, we are, say it with me, healed. Hundreds of years later, the Apostle Peter, writing as an old man, provides New Testament context to that. When he writes in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. What makes it possible? By his wounds you have been healed. Some people point to that and it becomes a physical healing only. We use a passage like that to, to believe in divine healing. And I believe in divine healing and we pray for healing and we should but Jesus understood what we ultimately need healing from. And that is sin and brokenness and unrighteousness and willful disobedience to the Father. And Jesus went to the cross for you and me so that we can walk in obedience to the Father. The cross is a powerful irony in that way. You see, what was intended by the Romans to bring death ultimately becomes the source for life. What was meant by Pilate to be a final, you know, pardon the pun, death knell in the movement of Christianity actually became the very seed of its growth and development. What was intended to be an object of shame by the world becomes an object of glory by God. What was supposed to symbolize hopelessness and brokenness becomes an illustration of hope and healing. But healing in what ways? So many ways. I'll land on just a couple for us this morning. First, because Jesus died on the cross for you and me, we can actually experience right relationship with people in our lives. We can be in a right relationship with other people. In fact, the imagery of the cross, Jesus on the cross, shows us beautifully how Jesus, even from the cross, cared about the relationships of us with each other, our families, the world around us, our neighbors, our co-workers, all of it. You might remember Jesus from the cross looks down and he, and he sees his mother there and he knows he's about to go away. And even from the cross, he looks at her and he looks at young disciple John and says, 
Mother, here's your son. Son, here's your mom. Basically, looking for her well-being, caring for the relationship, even in death, between him and his mom and her well-being. From the cross, Jesus, there dying for the sins of the world. Big picture here. Still has the time to listen to these two scallywags on either side of him. One of them making fun of Jesus, mocking him. The other one realizing he belongs up there for his crimes, but Jesus is innocent and doesn't belong there, begins to enter into conversation with him. And in his, in his moment of kind of recognition of who Jesus is, says to Jesus, will you remember me in paradise? And Jesus, even on the cross, dying for the sins of the whole world, has time to care about the brokenness of a relationship between him and another man. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 reminds us of the beauty of this. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. So that together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other has been put to death. Understand, my brothers and sisters, that the cross is not just there so you can look to it to find salvation from your sins, even though it is all of that. But in his death on the cross, Jesus recognized the power of healing that comes relationally, even in our human relationships with one another. When I see Jesus on the cross and I see the way he relates, relates to his mother and relates even to a criminal on the cross, it reminds me that the cross is not an object of the wrath of God. It's not an object of the anger of God. But the cross is the ultimate illustration of the self-giving love of God. It is not there just to simply make it right so we can go to heaven. But Jesus died on the cross so that we might find healing even in our relationships with each other. The cross is not there to destroy. The cross is there to redeem. And if you have broken relationships in your life, and I know most of us probably do, you know, ex-spouses or children far from our relationship with each other, far from God, neighbors, co-workers, and it just seems like the world is so broken all around us. Brothers and sisters, look to the cross again. Find yourself before the cross crying out for the brokenness in the relationships in your own life with the people you love. Plead the blood for those where you need healing and hope. We can be in a right relationship with each other and it's all possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. But it's not just about our broken relationships with each other, but ultimately the big picture of it all is that is that Jesus died on the cross so that we might be in a right relationship with God. Ultimately, the ultimate healing of the cross is for the broken relationship we experience with the one who made us. Seen and evidence so beautifully from Jesus on the cross himself, blood pouring from him, his life draining from him, the very breath in his chest being slowly taken away, Jesus looks down upon the world that has just been screaming, crucify him. He sees the Roman soldiers who have nailed him to the cross. And Jesus, even in his own agony, cries to the Father and asks the Father to forgive those who have done this to him. From the cross, 
Jesus speaks words. Some people like to focus on the, the words Jesus spoke, and it's beautiful. Every word he speaks from the cross focuses on fulfilling the purpose that he knew was the reason he must stay there. You and I believe, I hope, that Jesus could have called down 10,000 angels. Jesus could have ended it. He could have come down from the cross, but he stayed there ultimately so that people just like you and someone just like me would have the opportunity to be in a right relationship with the God who made us. The God we've rejected, the God we've gone our own way from, Jesus stayed there so that by his death on the cross, we might find life. Most of us know John 3.16 pretty well, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? But the verses right before it say this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I find it utterly overwhelming that the same word in the original language for grace is also the same word at the root for healing. When you realize that God has poured out his grace and that you can only be saved by grace, through faith in Christ, amen? That grace is the same language as healing. That God did not send Jesus in the world just so you can have a moment with Jesus, continue to live however you want and go to heaven someday. Jesus came and died on the cross so that you might experience what real salvation is all about, and that is about heaven, but it's about everything from the moment you receive Christ all the way to heaven. Jesus came to bring healing to your life. Wholeness. He wants you to be who you were made to be. He wants you to find and discover the joy of a life committed fully to the will of the Father. He wants you to discover what life is all about when you bow the knee before his cross in submission, take up your own cross and follow him wherever he might lead you. It's all the same. Grace is about healing and ultimately healing. Real healing the kind you and I need and can't get for ourselves, that's made possible only by grace. 2,000 years ago, God came to earth. He was embodied in his anointed one, the real anointed one, his Messiah, in a person. His name was Jesus. And he came into this world to rescue, and he came into this world to rule. And he didn't just come and set up a throne and say, I'm the man but he came right to the point where the pain of the world was most sharply focused. The cross, the ultimate symbol of Rome's power and torture and control and death. And he allowed evil itself to be played out completely upon him. He did that. He took evil's greatest weapon, death, and he allowed it to be played out in his life. And to that cross, millions have been drawn. Not driven, but drawn. People of all sorts, especially people in dire need of rescue and hope and purpose. 
And the crucified Jesus stays on that cross, stayed on that cross to draw us to himself. Because he knew that in his cross we might even see our own stories mirrored just a bit. Our own tale of being treated unjustly by others. In the cross we might see our own horrible betrayals. We might see our own false accusations. We might see our own unfair humiliation at the hands of other people. Especially those we thought loved us. We might even understand our own suffering, the brokenness of our own bodies, the mortality of our own lives, our own death even. In the cross, we see the brokenness, the reality of a fallen world. Not just the brokenness and sins of other people, but in the mirror of it all, brothers and sisters, we catch a glimpse of the brokenness and sin within us. And our own need for rescue and our own need for healing, and our own need for hope. And when we see that cross and the ugliness of it all, what we find there is not the brokenness, the death, the murder, the loss. What we find there is an innocent Savior hanging there. And it forces us to face our own recognition that we deserve punishment for our sin. We deserve to be on that cross. But what we see is a Savior who rescues us by taking that sin upon himself instead. The cross of Jesus is the symbol of God's unmerited favor. The cross is proof that God gives us what we need instead of what we deserve. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Say it with me, will you? While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. The cross is a triumph, brothers and sisters. It is the triumph of God's self-giving love. How far God is willing to go to make it possible for people like you and me in a broken world to be in right relationship with the God who we have rejected. The cross is a triumph in that it, it, it models a love A love that can't be manufactured. A love that can't be conjured up. A love that can't be created. That looks death itself in the face. And voluntarily meets death on its own terms. And then defeats it there. Because the cross does not have the final say. And he doesn't just do it on behalf of himself. Or the people he likes. Or even his own ethnic group. But he does it for Jews, and he does it for Greeks, and he does it for people just like you, and he does it with a person just like me. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 3.16, not as well known as John 3.16, but look at the power of it all. It says, this is how we know what love is. Christ Jesus laid down his life for us. Some of you might well remember the hymn that we sang when I was growing up called, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And Jesus would invite us to not just simply see him there, to survey him there, But Jesus would invite us to be drawn to him there. And ultimately, 
as we, as we look upon and, and relate to Him in that way, to find life there, forgiveness there, hope there, rescue there, purpose there. Ultimately, all those things combined, salvation there. And one of the lines in that song, some of you might remember if you sang it years ago, it says, see from his head, his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down, the blood of Jesus pouring from his head, from his hands, from his feet. And then it asks the question, did ever such love and sorrow meet? Has there ever been a moment in human history where such things met together in such a powerful way? Was there ever a time where thorns compose so rich a crown? Thorns of crown of Jesus, and the answer to that is no. A thousand times no. There's no greater illustration in the history of the world, in the history of all humanity, where such love met than what Jesus did for you and me on the cross. And when we see Jesus on the cross, not, let's not just be the Greeks who want to see him, but let's be drawn to him. And let's not just be drawn to him so that we can get the goodies, forgiveness and heaven. But let's do what Jesus says and commit to remaining near that cross, taking up our own cross and following him in willful obedience wherever it is he calls us to go. Because there's only one adequate response when you realize what God's done for you. Only one. You can't buy this. You can't manufacture it. You can't make it happen for yourself. All of this is a gift. Amen? It's a gift. And I learned a long time ago that a gift is worthless unless I receive it. Unless I... Take that package that's all wrapped up and unwrap it and receive all that's there within. Last line after it says, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? It says, Were the whole realm of nature mine? In other words, if I had control of everything in the created order, all of nature, if the realms of this earth all belong to me and I were to give that to God, here's what the song says, were the whole realm of nature mine, and I give it, that would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, love so divine, only one response demands my soul, my life, my all. I believe, even though I don't see it all the time because the world's broken, I do believe that in the cross of Jesus, God was and is reconciling the world to himself. I believe with all my heart that God is still, no matter what else happening around us, it might say contrary to that, the purposes of God are marching forward and God's will is going to be done. The goal of God is not going to be interrupted. I believe in all of that. I believe Jesus died on the cross to save the world. But I also believe that Jesus died on the cross to save you. Your name, your life, your personhood, he died to save me. And then I can give him all kinds of stuff, and that's wonderful. I can give him all the nature, everything that I have. But what he wants is me. He wants my soul, my life, my all. 
He wants me to be to see him there, to be drawn to him there, and to follow him in obedience as a result of what happens there. So my brothers and sisters this morning, I want to invite you maybe again, but maybe for the very first time, I invite you to kneel before the cross in a spirit of humility and gratitude. And there, whatever the brokenness in your life may be with others, with your work, with your marriage, with your kids, with your grandkids, I want you to find, I want you to cry out to Jesus for healing, for grace. I want you to find rescue. If in your own heart, you know there's brokenness there in your relationship with God, I, we understand that Jesus doesn't look upon, down from the cross with rage toward you. He doesn't look down at the cross with, with disgust toward you. He stayed on the cross with a heart of love toward you to offer you life and hope and forgiveness and salvation. May we find healing for broken relationships today at the cross of Jesus, both with God and with others. I'd like to ask you to stand this morning, and I'm going to have Hayden lead us in this song that some of you might know. And as you sing these words, I pray they'll take hold of you and whatever the brokenness is in your life, you will find healing today in ways that honor the Lord. Hayden, sing for us this morning. Feel free to sing along if you know the song. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but lost and poor content on all my pride. See from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow me go down Did air such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown. Oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross bids me come and die and find that I may truly live Oh the wonderful cross Oh the wonderful cross 
all who gather here by grace draw near and bless your name were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small of so amazing so tug, no pull, but this morning with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you are praying for the healing of God on the relationships of your life, family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, community, would you just quietly lift your hand, let me pray for you this week, pleading the blood of Jesus, the cross of Christ over your relationships, God bless you, amen, all over. This morning, if you're looking to the cross and you're you're praying for the healing of God's grace in your relationship with God or the relationship of others you love with God. Would you quietly lift your hand? Let me pray for you this week. Amen. Are there others? God bless you. Yes. Amen. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your presence here today. Thank you for the beauty, the majesty, the glory of the cross. Lord, in our world, we we get so frustrated when society doesn't buy in, when they make fun, mock, undermine the church. We want everyone to agree with us. We want everyone to like us. We want everyone to think this is the way and we believe and we know it is. And God, may millions come to you. I pray, Lord, that we'll recognize that success sometimes is not in everyone doing what we want them to do. Not even a society choosing the path we would choose for it. But sometimes the glory of the cross is found in rejection, betrayal, undermining, suffering, even death. So Lord, help us not to, not to turn our face away from the beauty, the majesty, the glory of the cross, but to recognize that in all of that is grace and healing. And Jesus, you gave us that. 
For those who raise their hand praying for those they love, give them grace and wisdom as they, as they seek to build that bridge between them and others. May they plead the blood of Christ on their relationships. For those who raise their hand for themselves or for others, pleading the blood of Jesus for those who have fallen far from God, in need of rescue, in need of salvation. God, I pray that that, that same grace, that same healing, found, found as your work on the cross made possible, may you move and work in the lives of those we love. In our lives, God, to find hope and salvation, rescue and purpose. We love you and we thank you, Jesus, for your obedience all the way to the cross. We love you and we want to serve you with our lives. We're drawn to you there. We want to see you there, but we want to serve you there. So God, I pray you'd go with us. Help us this week to be people, Father, of the cross in all we say and do. And for what you'll do in our lives this week, we will give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. And all God's people agreed and said, Amen. May God bless you as you go, living and being blessed by the beauty of the cross. God bless.